Hi, this is Allison Weisbrot, Editor-in-Chief of Campaign US. It's the last week of the year, so today we're going to look back on some of my favorite conversations from campaign chemistry in 2023. What McCann does at its best is create enduring brand platforms, which is the best of brand thinking and brand planning. I talk a lot about firsts here at the agency. I love like doing things that have never been done before. There's nothing more exciting than that, like jumping into the <laughs> into the darkness and not knowing what's going to happen. There's the there's a thrill in that. The role of Droga5 in different markets is very different. Mm-hmm. I think that's true of lots of global strategy that happens for networks. We're very much about our brands. So a big part of my role is about the portfolio strategy and making sure we're very clear about how we prioritize our brands and making sure we've got a portfolio which is fit for purpose. I think that the alignment of curiosities is even more important than the alignment of beliefs mm. in, in an industry that changes as much as ours. More and more clients were coming to us with their really high level business challenges, not just marketing challenges, not just branding challenges. This is the challenge for our company. And so how could we create a better partnership for them? We'll be back with some fresh content in your feed in 2024. Happy holidays. Let's kick off this special holiday episode with an episode I recorded back in January with Hilton CMO Mark Weinstein. Hi, Mark. How are you? Thank you so much for being here today. I'm doing well. Happy New Year. And thanks for having me on, Allison. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk about Hilton, one of the most iconic hotel brands out there. But first, I'd love to talk about your career there. You've been there 12 years or so, which is which is a long time to be at one company these days, I think, for some people. So talk about how you got there and how you worked your way up to being the CMO. Yeah, great question. I, I got this interesting phone call. The company had been taken private uh, and gone through the private equity transition. And The team said, look, we have this hypothesis. We have 10 hotel brands, and we believe that while every brand needs to win in the marketplace, actually many of our customers are staying at all of our brands. They're transversing the brands for travel budgets, needs, and occasions. And so they're staying at a Waldorf Astoria for their wedding and going to a Hilton for a business meeting, but going to a Hampton Inn for their kid's soccer game. And so we want to take the marketing, we want to take the loyalty program, which is distributed across all the brands, and put it in one team. And we're looking for some project management strategy support to help us do that. Would you would you come here for a year or two? <laughs> and so I, I said, sure, that's that's interesting. I was a frequent business traveler, a consultant, and I thought, well, this will be fun for, you know, again, a year or two. And I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with our purpose. Uh, you come in and very quickly you hear our founder say, you know, a hundred years ago, he wants to fill the earth with the light, warmth, the hospitality. We had a great CEO and very supportive, you know, board. Uh, and Chris, our CEO, and the board, and our sponsors in Blackstone, and went through this journey. And one thing led to another. And about a year in, uh, our head of honors had, had sort of left the company. And they said, "Do you want to run loyalty?" And I went, "Well, I'm not sure I can run loyalty." And they said, "Well, just have a go at it." And so I thought, "Well, I, I traveled enough as a business traveler. How hard can this be?" Uh, and had a chance to really learn the business from the inside out, and spent the better part of a decade taking Hilton honors from time 25 million customers and members to now about 146 and change million members that make up over 60% of our occupancy took on responsibility for our co-branded credit cards, our strategic partnerships, our CRM and our email marketing. And then ultimately coming out of the pandemic was asked, you know, why don't we put it all together and would you lead our marketing team? Yeah, I find it super interesting that you came up to the CMO role through a loyalty background. 
talk about that because I feel like usually a lot of the times CMOs come from, you know, brand creative or they come from more of maybe like the straight marketing or media side of things. How did, why was loyalty so important at Hilton? Yeah, well, it, it, admittedly, you know, at the end of the day, it, it was an artificial divide probably to have marketing, traditional marketing separate from loyalty. But I think what it reflects in our business is that so much of our business comes from the same customers, that at the end of the day, it really is about taking these incredible brands that each win their category. And we have a lot of folks focused on making sure a Hampton is a Hampton and a, a True is a True and a Waldorf's a Waldorf and a Hilton's a Hilton, but ultimately making sure customers have a reason to connect the dots and put all the brands together and have reasons to believe that when it's by Hilton, that just means something different than if these brands were separate in the marketplace. What I think it reflects though is, and, and maybe not a traditional route to your, to your point, I think the best marketing starts and ends with the customer. You know, at the end of the day, if you understand your customers who you're currently serving, and this is an obvious statement, but but one that I think we gloss over sometimes, who you're currently serving and who you might want to serve in the future, ultimately all decisions, you know, sort of resonate from that. Right? And if you think about who's who's there and what we're trying to accomplish, then telling that story powerfully through social and content becomes an out, you know, outgrowth of, of knowing your customer finding a way to stand in the marketplace through your TV commercials or your audio strategy or your branding efforts or your you know paid media in the lower funnel all comes from knowing your customers. And so I, I, in some ways, I think it is the definition of modern marketing is really coming together from that place. But I think it also um, really flags what I think is an artificial divide when some companies have brands separate from performance marketing, when really it, it, it's all the above. It's you know, a deep quantitative analysis and understanding of your customers and where the business comes from, and ultimately then how to tell that story in the most creative, effective way. And I often say when you know, I talk to students on campuses and stuff, you know, at some level you become an executive of the company who happens to run marketing versus just a marketer. Right? At the end of the day, if you, you have to know how your company makes money, what moves the needle. And so for me, understanding our customers deeply, their behaviors, their patterns, their trends, that's become the core of our strategy to be even more customer centric. And what's been fun is finding great partners and bringing along great agencies and, and building out my team to have great creatives and great content builders and influencers and um, you know all the different parts of the creative side of the business, which I've always been adjacent to and a part of. But my sort of thought process always starts with, well, what's in it for the customer? What are we trying to accomplish? Not what are we trying to accomplish, but why would the customer find that brand interesting? Why would the customer find that, that offer interesting? Why would the customer differentiate our marketing in the sea of sameness? And again, my tool chest had mostly been Hilton Honors uh, and our partnership teams, and now includes the full arsenal of marketing, which I think, and I'm obviously biased, but I think that makes for a better go-to-market strategy starting with the customer. So we just heard from a CMO. Now let's hear from an agency leader. I spoke to Daryl Lee, global CEO of McCann World Group back in February. Here's some of that conversation. You've restructured the group to bring the agencies closer together. Part of that, I think, like you said, is giving people two hats, right? Like putting Kate McNevin, for example, in the MRM role in addition to a McCann role. Talk about the strategy behind that and why that makes sense. Well, on the first level, it just gives everybody a sense of commitment to the group as much as to the agencies. You've got to get the balance right. I think so much of what we discuss in the industry is you've got to do an either or. You know, you either have to be a group of people who strongly believe in agency cultures, which I do. I strongly believe in agency cultures. I think 
Agency cultures are the strong cultures that attract people and retain them and attract clients and retain them. And at the same time, no agency can do everything and the real magic, the real uh, impact collectively of our work is when we when we come together. So it's giving people a f- sort of a foot in each camp, which is you're 50% an MRM person and you're 50% a McCann War Group person. And so when we come together, I use the analogy of soccer, not because I'm a great soccer player, I'm not, but because I think um, you can be a very proud member of the Barcelona team and an equally proud member when you play for Spain for your national, you know, for the World Cup. And it's, you can be both. You don't have to choose. You don't have to be, I'm only working in Barcelona. I'm only working for Spain. I'm only working for, I'm only playing for Argentina. It's like, no, you you play for both and with equal pride and equal um, energy. And so one at one level, it's just giving everybody a balanced view of you have a foot in each camp. And when we show up as McCann War Group, it's with as much energy and pride as if you show up as McCann or MRM. And the second thing is, um, so we don't, so we can, you know, so we don't duplicate things. We begin to look at what are we working on in the different agencies at, at the same time, which are the same issues, AI, metaverse, deepening, you know, commerce, deepening our connection between commerce, advertising creativity and commerce creativity. How do we not do that in a duplicated way? How do we create a critical mass and, and pool our resources and figure out what we can also invest in when we aren't duplicating things? So there's a, you know, there's a business structure benefit there as well. And then thirdly, uh, and I'm very passionate about this, as you know, I'm committed to diversity, equity, inclusion. McCann World Group has a five or six years of really working around conscious inclusion as a cultural strategy and commitment for the for the network. I, I believe that how you show inclusion is through collaboration. So you can be inclusive of people's identities and make them feel welcome, but still there's no actual working together, right? So we've now made collaboration as important as inclusion because I think that the muscles you get by working together across agencies are the muscles we need to have for our clients when they say, hey, do you can you work with a Netflix? Or hey, can you work with um, this cool company that's developing drone technology that allows us to do, you know, aerial uh, aerial signage and stuff. We, we have to be partner, really strong partners. And so building our own partnership in our own company is how we sort of stress test those muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, the great thing about McCann War Group is that it's, it's a branded group. It's not a holding company. It's a branded group. So we have to show up as a group that knows how to play a sport together. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's sort of why McCann World Group was created, right? So right. what's been like the, what's been holding it back, I guess, from doing that or not to the extent that you think that it should be? Well, it's gone through its evolution. There, there were times it was created out of seven agencies that came together and kept some of their kept their identity largely and then there have been different iterations like everything there's a pendulum maybe there were times when mccann war group became too dominant and sort of swallowed the agency brands maybe uh and then the and then the reaction to that was well we'll kind of go our separate ways and mccann war group will be sort of the place that's sort of a financial clearinghouse um so that we could build back the brands and that's definitely when i 
when I came back, the thing I noticed, I mean, I was last here as the McCann War Group Chief Integration Officer. So when I came back, I'm like, wow, there isn't a lot of McCann War Group. There's just a lot of individual brands. And that was a reaction to there being too much War Group. So you got to get the balance right. And, it, and if it were the case that clients were super interested in just their agency brands and not looking for these solutions that were bringing together different pieces, I think I would have stuck to the strategy because the brands are the important thing. You've got to get agency brands right. You've got to get your capabilities right. You've got to get your people right. But I know, and you know, I'm sure that clients are looking for more and more sort of bring it all together for me. I don't really care about who the different agency ingredients are. I just want you to make the meal mm -hmm. to be the right restaurant that makes me the meal that I like and yeah. you bring the ingredients together. So we've got to get both. Yeah. But that's a fair question. It was set up to do this. So I do feel quite like comfortable in what I'm doing because it's the whole purpose of how McCampbell Group was set up. Moving on to another agency in March, I spoke to Margaret Johnson, the CCO of Goodby Silverstein and Partners. You've been at Goodby for 25 years, right? Which is a long time to be a one agency. So tell me about how like your journey there, you know, what's changed over time? Uh, my journey is kind of an interesting story, actually, because when I was a kid putting my portfolio together, there was an art director named Jeremy Poster who I really loved his style. And um, he happened to work here at Gibby Silverstein. And um, I would try to make everything that, that I did look like his work. And when I got out of, um, I was at the Portfolio Center in Atlanta at the time, putting a portfolio together. And when it was time for me to graduate, I sent my portfolio to Jeremy. And as luck would have it, he hired me <laughs> to, uh, to come work for him. He was working at a different agency at that time um, called Leonard Monaghan, Lou Bars and Kelly in Providence, Rhode Island. But uh, no surprise, he liked my book because it looked exactly like his book. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so that's kind of how I first discovered this place and um, really always wanted to, to work here. So anyway, that's a little funny backstory. But I started at the bottom here and uh, just over time have just worked on pretty much every client in the building and worked my way up. And now I am the chief creative officer. Yeah, that's amazing. So talk about what that was like for you as a as a female kind of starting at the bottom, working your way to the top. Like, how did you do it? I think a lot of a lot of women in the creative field want to know, like, how do you kind of persevere until you, you know, reach that highest level? You know, I think for me, historically, I, you know, started out being a real worker bee and I would be here until... 10 o'clock every single night, head down. Um, wasn't really the kind of person who would ask for help because I felt like I could just, you know, do it better myself. <laughs> and then I later learned that that's not the most efficient way, efficient way to work. But um, I don't know. I think things really came into focus when I had my first child and I went away for maternity leave and, um, there were a couple of <laughs> male creatives who leapfrogged me during that time and it really pissed me off. And because um, I felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm better than those guys and now they've moved ahead. And so it just kind of uh, dawned on me that I really had to be better about advocating for myself. 
and that's something that I've tried to, to teach other women um, as I've learned it <laughs> the hard way. Yes. So how did you advocate for yourself? Like, because I think that happens to a lot of women, right? They go off, they have kids and then they realize, oh, I'm behind now. Um, so what, what, did it t- what did you do to sort of get yourself back in the mix? Well, it's funny. When I was away on maternity leave, I met a um, I met with a recruiter, and she was, you know, trying to get me interested in taking a job at a couple of other places. And during that breakfast, I remember she was getting um, more and more agitated because I think she could feel that I wasn't really interested in any of the the jobs that that she had to offer. And uh, so she finally got so frustrated. She's like, "You know what your problem is." You don't have a brand. And it was kind of a a gut punch at the time, but it was so true. And I think my lucky stars that I had that breakfast with her, her name is Trish Shortell. Um, And she, from that point forward, was really, you know, a mentor for me in my career because she she really just, she was one of those people that just says it like it is. Mm -hmm. And I really needed to hear that at the time because she, you know, she went on to say, look, you are uh, way more talented than a lot of creatives that I meet, but no one knows who you are. So it was a, a moment where I realized, okay, I've got to you know, get it together. I have to, to really create a brand for myself and get out there and do podcasts or do interviews or judge award shows or you know, write a thought piece, like just you know, making the industry you know, pay attention and know who you are. Mm-hmm. Do you find that like often it, it is easier for men to kind of do that for themselves, right? Like as a woman, is it harder to sort of like put yourself out there or just like you hadn't been focused on it? I hadn't really been focused on it. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of times women can be a little more head down, worker be like, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I try to tell other women in in my department that, you know, you gotta, you gotta speak up. The squeaky wheel. You gotta be the squeaky wheel. Let's stay in the creative agency world and listen to a conversation I had with Susie Nam later on in March, who was at the time the CEO of Droga5, now CEO of Publicis Creative. What's been the biggest change? And then what's sort of been the way that you've been most able to hang on to that magic of the early days or the culture? Yeah, I think, you know, early on, I think in our quote, I would call it like our adolescence, um, a few years after I started, we we chose to pitch Prudential. And I think people were kind of like scratching their heads, like, why would Drogify do that? Um, and, and I think for us, it was the, the challenge of proving to the world that we weren't just flavor of the month, that we had real substance that we could take on strategic challenges, build a platform that would last year over year, and we did. And on the other side of it, we won titaniums for years off of Prudential's work. So I think that was a real uh, inflection point in our growth. I think another one that we've taken on, all the while taking on the things that were probably more predictable. We always used to say in new business that clients or prospects that were thinking of moving the needle like 0.002% aren't going to come looking for Droga. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they tend to be seeking meaningful change or trying to be a category of one. And and we attracted those types of CMOs and those types of brands. So we always had the right pH balance. Even when we went for things like Prudential, we had 
uh, JP Morgan Chase at the moment, and and we have six lines of business with them, all the while trying to do things that are subverting the norm, mm-hmm. pushing the envelope, not only of the category but of the industry. So we're we're maintaining that urge to disrupt throughout all of it, but but I think we've had to build um, necessary complexity within our disciplines so that we can do both the full funnel experience and be a real partner to our clients. They're not looking to overly fragment and have 12 partners. They want fewer partners going deeper. Mm-hmm. So we had to kind of meet them at the table on all of that stuff. So I think I think I would like to think that our culture has maintained itself in all of the kind of qualitative parts of it, but we've definitely brought in more sophistication and and more bureaucracy in the right way so that we could build the ranks. I think the good example of that is strategy. Started with brand strategy only, more conventional, and it's expanded to communication strategy, media strategy, and data strategy, like most agencies have to. Yeah. So talk about how the Accenture um, acquisition sort of helped you be able to add that extra operational rigor as well as like grow into new capabilities. I know that, you know, there's Accenture Interactive, which David is now running, and then there's Droga 5 and there's Accenture Song. Clarify a little bit about like who does what and what you guys all sort of enable each other to do. Yeah, good question. I think um, I, I think there's more clarity to be driven there for sure. The um, So firstly, Accenture Interactive was the old name before David. So there's no off. Accenture Interactive. I should know that. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. No, it's fair enough. I think there is uh, a bit of ambiguity on that. So that's gone away and it Got has it. been replaced with Accenture Song, which um, David did in an effort last year to consolidate the number of brands that required standing up across the network. And it is a mission to consolidate and and kind of be in some ways an anti-holding company and kind of operate much more as one, Um, not have competing P&Ls essentially, um, or be put up for pitch against each other. We wanted to kind of operate as one and ideally bring bring all the right aspects and be fit for purpose for every ask across regions. So he did that globally. Um, So that's the first thing. The, The other thing is that Uh, The acquisition of Droga for Accenture is based on this hypothesis on both sides of the table that in this media climate, it requires a level of acumen, delivery, um, and depth of understanding in both media, technology, and content at scale that I think most agencies are endeavoring to do and perhaps lagging it a little bit and Accenture actually does. And so it's it's looking for a level of delivery, scale, uh, kind of um, ability to stand things up for clients that is pretty robust. Mm. Um, and I think the, the union between the two is getting tighter every day. I would be lying to say that it was uh, a perfect fit from the from day one. I think that it took a lot of education on both sides. There's a lot I didn't understand about what I call big Accenture and then Accenture Song as an organization. It was fairly foreign for me, the consulting world. And so there was a learning curve for our management team and understanding, oh, interesting, you have a whole unit 
dedicated to, for instance, retail. Thousands and thousands of people globally who know absolutely everything about the retail space and, and DTC and what's pivoting for vertical retailing. Examples like that, that I think those subject matter experts bringing to bear for the right circumstances is not something most agencies can do. Um, but the technology side of the equation is really important too. They have hubs for sustainability, hubs for um, metaverse that David is leading. There's also uh, the whole true hardware and tech stack part of the business that definitely speak a lang- different language than I do. <laughs> but if we can build the right connective tissue, starts to create a bridge towards what clients are actually faced with. I think what they do is they they siphon off a part of their brain when they're talking to agencies. And I think increasingly, if we're going to deepen and be a real strategic partner, we need to be able to occupy a bigger portion of the conversation credibly. Mm-hmm. So if we bring a partner from Accenture and sit at the table and not only talk about personalization and CRM, but also what the data lake and data warehouse needs to be in order to support said system, it starts to be a comprehensive, full-formed thought that I think we're striving for. Now back to the brand side, a conversation I had with Diageo Chief Marketing and Innovation Officer, Ed Pilkington back in April. I'm curious, like what you think about, um, and you don't have to put yourself in their shoes necessarily, but like the whole, uh, controversy that's going on with Bud Light right now around working with a trans influencer, I guess I'm curious, like, do you think that that's going to make marketers rethink their diversity partnerships and strategies? What are the impacts of, of that? I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to comment directly on there's probably enough things written and said about about what's going on. But I think, as I said, we're we're super proud. We, we as a business, espouse diversity. We want to make sure that we are diverse in terms of who we are, who we partner with, how we work. We really, we really totally believe in that. And that, that's full sweep of diversity. But actually, we did it. We kicked off a lot of work a few years ago. We realized we weren't doing enough in areas like disability as well, for example. So there's there's so much more we can do. So being very broad in what we do. And then I think, you know, our brands, in the case of our brands, we've got a, a great history in our brands of, you know, partnering sort of it with, uh, for example, you take LGBTQ um, plus agenda, you know, Smirnoff goes back till pretty much just after Stonewall, uh, where mm-hmm. we've, we've partnered and worked. So, you know, so brands, you know, our brands have got a history of doing it. I think we do it uh, for the right way with a genuine history of supporting different communities. But I think, you know, each brand needs to do what's right for that brand. Um, I think, you know, also people need to be aware of the agenda and the world we live in. Um, you know, but um, but you know, as, as an organisation, we we are very proud of uh, how we are as an organisation, and we believe that you know we want to see a more tolerant world, and that's what we're, we're looking for. But I'm not going to comment much more, more on what other other companies are doing. That's fair. So um, I'm curious also about the responsible drinking agenda. Talk about that and how that sort of is a net positive for the brand. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a funny. So if you. Um, actually, it's interesting. A little aside, we um, on the ESG agenda. I mean, one of the great things about working with Diageo is they they push us. They want to develop us as leaders. So um, a, a few of us got sent on a, an Oxford University sustainability course, uh, which was fantastic. So I finally got a an edu- I finally got a qualification from Oxford University, which is great. <laughs> I, didn't quite, I didn't quite manage it first time round, um, and, uh, and it was great anyway. So I learned loads. It was about seventy five hours of learning, which was good, uh, and it reflected our commitment. But I mean, uh, having sort of Im- immersed myself in it and got closer to it and the agenda, you sort of, you take step step back as a corporation, you sort of realize 
We're not just about financial capital, you know, it really is about natural capital, the world and the planet and the resources we use and social capital. And and that really is about the, the communities and what we how we work and how we operate in our communities. And if you think about positive drinking, you know, we really do believe that, you know, drinking's been around for thousands of years. And at its best it is, you know, at the heart of what good times where people celebrate and have great times with their friends, families, loved ones, and all of that. And we really believe in that. We want it to be around for thousands of years, but we have to be aware of the role that it plays in society uh, and communities. So it's so an active level. One, we need to be operating in communities, very, you know, so literally down different communities, different groups, different social groups, actively participating. And then we also want to get the message out about just drinking and enjoying uh, drinking responsibly. And a big part of that is, is moderation. So how you moderate, how you drink. So a lot of our messaging is around moderating. And then we use candidly the strength of our brands to get those messages across. We have other platforms as well, which we use. We created a thing a while ago called Drink IQ, which is really good, which you can go and check out, which gives information about drinking. So our role is to help to, to educate. So we've got various different programs we've got, some around drinking in general, which is which is really interesting. And then stuff, some things we do on our brands. Um, give an example, Crown World for quite a few years, we've run a program called Water Break. And it's really simple and it's just and it links to the work we do around the NFL, which is just when you're drinking, have a break. You know, it is if you have a drink, drink water. It's really simple. Don't drink too many. Uh, it's just really simple message, you know, uh, that we need to get across because actually that just makes for better society. So so we, we really believe in it. Uh, we believe in investing in the societies and communities in which we operate. Um, and we believe that we have to, you know, try and inform people around around the category that we, we operate in, because we do believe in the category. We believe that, it's, you know, it's been an important part of society for many years, but, you know, we're very aware of the role it plays in society. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sort of like as a major producer, sort of owning the responsibility yeah. of a product, right? You, you have to you have to do it. And I'm not saying it's about us regulating ourselves. But it is us being very aware of the, the role that it plays in society. We believe that it can, alcohol can play a, a very positive role in society. But what we want is, and, and back to what I said earlier, actually, uh, we believe in like quality over quantity. I mean, if I look at Diageo in North America, we, we're the biggest spirits company, but our total share of all beverage alcohol is only about 7%. You know, we're not looking to, we don't want people to go out there to drink more. We want people to drink better, actually. What we want is quality. Enjoy it. Go out and have a brilliant kettle one mr black espresso martini on thursday friday night and enjoy that so you know that that's what we want you know uh we, so we're really on on agenda around people really enjoying and, and look life's better if you have lovely things and nice things around you and you can enjoy it and enjoy stuff in moderation that's that's a simple message that we want to put out and then support the communities we operate in basically now let's fast forward to just a few weeks ago when I sat down with 72 and sunny global CEO Evan Shutt. So I want to talk a little bit more about your plans for the agency. I know that, um, you know, 72 and sunny, obviously the name implies a very LA centric agency, but you're investing a lot in New York. You're actually in New York today while we're talking, although we didn't know. So we could have done this in person, but um, tell me about your plans for New York and, and why that's like such a strategic growth area. Yeah. Well, you know, first fun, fun fact about our name, like it, it does speak to the common weather when you land in Los Angeles, but we started in LA and Amsterdam technically on the same day. And it's really meant to be a statement of optimism in an industry that can be pretty sarcastic. Um, and you know, that's not positivity. That's, we acknowledge there's problems and challenges, but we are pretty committed that there's always an opportunity somewhere in every challenge and finding it and then finding the opportunity that goes along with it. So um, that's the root of the name. And New York has been an office that um, has been around for about 10 years now. 
um, really started with our Smirnoff client at the time. Um, and it's one that it took us a bit to get our feet because we do bring relentless optimism, which, you know, in New York didn't fly right away. <laughs> I'm chuckling because I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, I think uh, optimism with an edge was working maybe a little bit better here. Um, you're, I'm looking to see if you're like, yes, no. Um, <laughs> Has to have a little like healthy skepticism, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's an office that's done some incredible work. Has worked with Comcast and the Olympics for years. So my favorite piece of work they did was for uh, Smirnoff in um, 2020, where they had a, it was on a bus shelter in New York. And it says, said, we'd be happy to talk about our Russian ties under oath. Right. Um, in real time, responding That's a good one. to things happening in the world. And, you know, I think it's finding the New York culture of our impact and culture is what that's about. And it's why I'm so excited to have uh, Jeff and Juliana, a part of the team leading it now. I think two people who have played a big role in New York for quite some time and on some massive brands. So um, it's exciting. Yeah. So what are your like ambitions just to, to are you are you hiring? Um, obviously, I'm sure going for more clients, but like what's sort of the plan here? Yeah. Continue to grow. For me, the, the growth of the company is about more opportunities for the people we have. Right. Like mm -hmm. this company is only as good as the people we have. We're fortunate that we have built a culture and a way of working that attracts incredible people. It's why our clients keep coming back to us. And so I think the goal is to continue to build on what we've had in New York and take it to the the next level to open up more impact and opportunities. So, yeah, you know, I don't there's it, I don't believe, buy into the like you can get too big that it's not good. Um, I think we've continued to push against that theory. Um, and New York is an example of that, which is exciting for us. Yeah. Well, like you said, you've been at the agency since day one. Um, it seems like a lot of talent has stayed over the years like talk about like what's it been like for you to kind of watch this agency grow from LA New York to now being sort of one of the most well-known creative agencies in the space global and you're the CEO like how's that talk about that trajectory it's crazy <laughs> um, I still laugh when, you know, we'll have someone in from uh, a college and they'll talk about a case study with our name in it. And I, I still remember having to spell our name for every production company we would call begging for a favor um, in the early days. And we definitely have nicer bathrooms than we had at the start. <laughs> so that's good. But it's been an incredible ride. I, um, you know, I love to learn and it has no shortage of that and it has no shortage of challenges and inspiration at the same time. So for me though, it's ultimately the people and I think the, the way we model it uh, from a leadership standpoint, which, you know, was modeled for me when I came in of everyone's voice matters, asking for points of view, you know, when John and Glenn we're starting the company, they were very clear that wouldn't things be solved easier if we put it at the middle of the table and we asked others for input versus went into a room by ourselves or passed a brief from person to person. So how do we, you know, encourage more to speak up? They valued my point of view when I was three days off from teaching and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and so how do we model that at the scale we're at now? You just keep doing it. Right. Yeah. Um, and we're pretty relentless in our commitment to that. 
I spoke to so many amazing guests this year. I wish I could have replayed all of them for you, but we're going to close it out with one more of my favorites, PJ Pereira, creative chairman at Pereira Odell. Another thing that creatives and the younger generation are going to have a lot of exposure to is AI, if, if the current news cycle is any indication. And I know that Pereira Odell uh, recently launched an AI lab. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and sort of your vision for AI at the company? So I think that there's a lot of conversation AI right now, and, and no one knows exactly what this is going to be. Anyone that tells you that they know is that because they haven't gone deep enough. Right? So we can start with that. So it's, it's like we're all cavemen that just realize that we can take fire on a stick and bring it somewhere else. Right. But we have no idea what that fire is going to do. You know, I can imagine explaining to a, a caveman that one day, because of indirect responses from those things and indirect effects of those things, someone is going to make ice cream. If it doesn't make sense, how can you do something cold out of hot? But it happens yeah. because of, of so. I think that we have no context of, of no understanding of the, the indirect consequence of this in the world and in this business. But what I do know is that the only way to start to visualize it is by having this visceral feeling of, of what the possibilities can be. And you can only do that by trying something, by taking a small assignment and, and give yourself the, the, the a test to try to attempt so it was hard to convince the entire agency to try things because that they have like their 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 deadlines to fill and everything so what i did was something smaller in scope so we, i hired a um an ai artist to work directly with me and we started to give us a the, the task of weekly what we're going to do every week we try to get one thing little thing out and then we bring people in from other departments, from other things that are like, work with us on this. Let's try to get something done. Let's try to take, uh, find something that talks about uh, how robots and and mix robots and Charles Chaplin. And so how, let's see if we can play it. Let's see if we can do, uh, what is a movie that you would love to see in a different way? So let's take The Wizards of Oz and let's render it in, in a way that looks like an anime and Studio Ghibli kind of, of anime. So we started every week, we try to do one thing and we, from the conception to the final execution, we, we work with different people. What happened with that is that people started to, because they were having that visceral experience of seeing and giving themselves a task and trying to achieve and sometimes it fails, sometimes it has fails and sometimes it is a, a podiotic and kind of incredible feeling because it worked. Because of those things, people started to have ideas on regular assignments. So one day, the, the mini team came to, came to me for like, oh, we have this idea here of doing this, this thing. And that was an idea that died because it was too expensive. But if we use AI, we could make is an, an idea about uh, how the world was running out of minis because of the pandemic and, and, and the, the yes. supply chain issues, right? We so covered like, it. Yeah. We covered so it. So imagine, it's like, can we do that? So we like we have budget to do maybe two or three of those, but we cannot cr create the feeling that, that this is a, a real movement. So it's like, we can use AI to create hundreds of those and create the volume behind the, 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 the feeling of, of reality. 
but and do three or four to go deep and film it and and that will create the the the, the, the experience that we want and th so that idea that came back from that from that because someone had played with ai before ai is a playground you should you need to play yeah to see how how things can happen right now yeah i i think i agree like you know people need to know what the possibilities are but you can't like Overinvest in the hype, right? And then there's also things like, how do you think about like the ethical implications of AI? Like, is that something that you're thinking through, or it's hard, right? Because there's no laws that exist. So how do you kind of self self regulate? It's it's a it's a big deal. I mean, I think that part of the idea of training AI as a playground is play. We call it a lab, but it's actually a playground. You know, it's let's play with it. Playing is how mammals evolve to understand the world. From a lion cub to a puppy, dog, or humans, we grow up understanding. So, all right, if I take my real spoon and put on on this imaginary table, the ta the spoon is gonna fall, and that's how you learn about gravity. And you <laughs> learn that oh, things. Are, and and if you are victim to that gravity, it hurts. And that's how we are we are wired to understand the world. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to look at AI as something we need to play with to understand how this new world is the, the rules of these new worlds are is going to be but it, as a small scale at the moment we make it large scale that's when things become dangerous yeah because that's when when we're developing things that have more power that we can control that's when we have we're developing things with more legal and ethical implications that we can we even can even Visualize. So I think that this is a time to play and, and, and experiment in small scale. Big scale with AI concerns me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for being a campaign chemistry listener all year long. We're super excited for a new slate of guests next year. I am actually going to be taking some time off, but my esteemed colleague, Sabrina Sanchez, will take you into the new year with an episode featuring Abby Klassen, CEO of Densu Creative. Be sure to get your tickets to Campaign Convene, our first conference taking place on February 27th in New York City. And don't forget to subscribe to Campaign US, campaignlive.com, read all of our content, and we'll see you next year. And a happy new year. And a happy new, new year. year. <laughs> <laughs>